In the autumn of 1812, the British army in the peninsula was stopped at the walls of Burgos Castle and forced to retreat in disarray. Madrid, gloriously liberated after the Battle of Salamanca, was abandoned. It was arguably the lowest moment of the Peninsula War and left many British officers thinking that the war was now unwinnable. But can they bounce back? In today's episode of the Redcoat History Podcast, we'll be finding out the answer to that question. March with men like Sergeant John Spencer Cooper of the 7th Royal Fusiliers and Moyle Shearer, an officer of the 34th Regiment of Foot. Stand alongside Wellington and King Joseph as they face off at the Battle of Vittoria, a battle that will prove to be the most decisive of the war. Before we begin guys, I have two big announcements regarding my books. Firstly, if you sign up for my mailing list, you can now download my entire book on the Anglo-Zulu War for free. Just visit redcoathistory.com newsletter and fill out your details and you'll get a PDF copy of it. And secondly, my new book is now available for purchase. It's the Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsula War, Volume 2. The book covers the battles of Busaco, Barossa, Fuentes de Oñoro and Albuera. I'm really proud of it actually and I think that you'll enjoy it. If you're an Amazon user, then just search for my name, Christian Parkinson, and you can download the book in all formats as well from payhip.com slash redcoathistory. It's currently on special offer for £1.99, I think it's $2.99 in the US, but be aware that that price will go up after Christmas. The last time we met Wellington, he and his redcoats had been stopped and turned back from the city of Burgos in October 1812. What followed was a brutal retreat all the way back to the Portuguese border. If you need to catch up on that story, then please head back to episode 35, which was released in September, that's 2021 if you're listening in the future, where the esteemed historians Charles Esdale and Mark Thompson walk us through the events. It had been an arduous and demoralising few months. As Charles Oman, the great Peninsula War historian, writes, when the Anglo-Portuguese army halted at Ciudad Rodrigo, it was of course in very bad condition. The cold and wet of the last 10 days retreat from Salamanca had caused many a man to drop dead by the wayside and had sent thousands of sick to the hospitals, riddled with dysentery and rheumatism. And the hospitals and depots were, even before this last influx, loaded up with convalescents not fit for service from the casualties of Salamanca and Burgos. The December statistics were enough to fill Wellington with dismay. Of his 64 British battalions, there were only 30,397 men present with the colours, an average of much less than 500 bayonets to the battalion. There were no less than 18,000 men in hospital. That's more than a third of the total strength of the Allied infantry arm, or the British infantry arm, I should say. But as we all know, those redcoats are a tough bunch. Once back in winter quarters around the city of Ciudad Rodrigo, they soon began to find their spirit. Another great Peninsula War historian, Jack Weller, says in his book Wellington in the Peninsula, practically overnight, health, discipline and morale returned. Wellington had to remedy the shortcomings that had become apparent in 1812. The most serious of these was the weakness of internal discipline in many battalions. His officers strove to prove him wrong in his recent criticism. Slackness in all forms was eliminated. Schools for non-commissioned officers and enlisted men were set up in every unit. 
tons of powder and lead, and thousands of flints were expended in weapons practice. Every battalion was drilled to the extent that they could move from open column into line or form line into square in 30 seconds, even in rough country. He goes on to say, the heavy cast iron camp kettles which had been carried on mules were discarded and replaced with light sheet metal cooking pots which the men could carry themselves. This would help to avoid delay in the preparation of food. A reduction in the total load carried by each infantry soldier was also achieved in the spring by the elimination of greatcoats. With tents now available, a single blanket and ground sheet per man would be sufficient, except in really cold weather. Wellington had seen the benefits as well derived from the position and prestige of senior NCOs in the Guards. These men, by example, admonition and informal physical punishment, were largely responsible for the discipline of these great battalions. End quote. But it wasn't all hard work that winter. You know I like to dig into the autobiographies, the memoirs of the men who were there, and this is what John Howell of the 71st Highland Light Infantry recalled. We had passed the winter in the most agreeable manner. We lived well. The inhabitants were on good terms with us. We had everything in abundance and amusements were not wanting. We had bullfights at which we used to exhibit our powers. Several of our men were hurt. Our horsemen were particularly good bullfighters and the women used to give them great praise. Often we had dancing in the evening. Wine and mirth we never wanted. Music was our great want. The peasants used to dance to the sound of their rattles, consisting of two pieces of hard wood which they held between their fingers, and by shaking their hands, they called them castanets. They have one dance which I never saw in any other place. They call that the fandango. While John was busy having fun, reinforcements were also arriving. A brigade of household cavalry, one of hussars as well as fresh infantry. Wellington even won a battle with horse guards to keep hold of his battered provisional battalions, where he combined the skeletons of various battered units of veterans. He realised that these experienced combat troops were of more use to him than the green troops sent fresh from England. It's also important to note that Wellington was also now Generalissimo, Commander-in-Chief of the Spanish Army also, meaning that he could now order their generals to fit in with his plans, something they had always previously been loath to do. You only have to revisit my episode on the Battle of Talavera in 1809, or the recent one in Barossa, to realise how difficult the Anglo-Spanish relationship had been. As Wellington's Allied army grew and improved, the French one continued to decline. The disaster in Russia had seriously weakened them, 15,000 soldiers and numerous senior commanders were withdrawn from Spain to join Napoleon for the coming campaign in Germany. They were also being constantly harried by the indomitable Spanish guerrillas who tied down entire divisions and made it almost impossible for the French to send messages between units, at least not without a massive escort, or to scavenge for food. In May 1813, the Allied army was ready to march into Spain once again. Wellington had a strong force that included over 50,000 British troops, as well as nearly 40,000 Spaniards and just under 30,000 Portuguese soldiers. Wellington was optimistic. He had learned from his mistakes of the previous years, and this time he was determined to push the French all the way to the Pyrenees. He split his army into two wings. The left wing comprised six divisions and was commanded by Sir Thomas Graham, who we met recently at the Battle of Barossa. He was an impressive general who only took up soldiering in his forties. 
The right wing was three divisions under General Raoul and Daddy Hill, who was much beloved by his men, much beloved by his men. The plan is nicely described here in this book by Ian Fletcher in his Osprey book on the campaign, which I highly recommend. I'm going to read from it. Graham was to cross the Douro well inside Portugal, that's the Douro River, at Braganza and Miranda. The move being set for the 21st to 24th of May. Hill, meanwhile, was to move north from his headquarters at Korea and advance on Salamanca. Upon arrival, he was to march to his left and head for the Douro at Toro. <laughs> there he would join with Graham, who by then should have crossed the Esla River north of Zamora, and in so doing would complete the concentration of Wellington's army. More important, however, was the fact that once the two wings had established themselves on the north bank of the Douro, they would have turned the right wing of the French position on the Douro without having had to engage in a single serious action. The advance would either bring on a general engagement in front of Joseph's capital via Delid, or force Joseph to retire upon Burgos. The sweep north of the Great Road to France would also allow Wellington to move his supply line from Lisbon to northern Spain, a feat which the French thought highly improbable. With Hill's wing of the army was Moyle Shearer of the 34th Cumberland Regiment of Foot. I think he was a lieutenant at the time. He wrote of the rapid advance. We traversed a very interesting country to Salamanca where we arrived on the 26th. The enemy's rearguard, consisting of 400 cavalry, 3,000 infantry and four guns, evacuated the, the town as we approached. We did not march into the city, but forded the Tormes River a mile to the right of it. The French tried a few shots at our leading brigade of cavalry as it formed after passing the river, and then rapidly retired along the Tormes towards Babila Fuente. They were pursued, cannonaded, and much pressed by our cavalry and horse artillery, and sustained a loss of about 900 killed and wounded, and as many taken prisoner." End quote. After the capture of Salamanca, Wellington rushed north in time to see Graham's divisions make a hazardous but successful and unexpected crossing of the fast-flowing Esla River. This move completely wrong-footed the French, who quickly fell back without a fight. As Charles Amman said, and this is a quote, the first stage of Wellington's plan had been completed with entire success. Shortly afterwards, Burgos, the scene of Wellington's worst scrape, fell without a fight, the French blowing up the castle in their powder magazine on June the 13th. The British army then swung to the north and northwest, entering the mountains, a route that the French considered impossible to travel with baggage and artillery. One of the British soldiers described their pleasant surprise at the changing Spanish geography. Winding suddenly out of a narrow pass, we found ourselves in the river valley, which extended some distance on our right. The beauty of the scenery was beyond description. The rocks rose perpendicularly on every side, without any visible opening to convey an idea of an outlet. This enchanting valley is studded with picturesque hamlets and fruitful gardens, producing every description of vegetation. At the Puente Arenas, we met a number of sturdy women loaded with fresh butter from the mountains of the Asturias. We had not tasted that commodity for two years. Therefore, it will be unnecessary to describe how we readily made a purchase, nibbling, by the way, at such a luxury. We take butter for granted these days, don't we? So it shows you that uh, those guys hadn't had an easy couple of years. Once the Redcoats crossed the Ebro River, Wellington was also able to switch his lines of supply and communication. No longer did he have to rely on that long road from Lisbon, and he was now able to begin utilising the northern Spanish ports of Coruna and Santander. For a general, correctly obsessed with logistics, this was an important development. 
although for the men at the sharp end, it still seems that they had been forgotten by the commissariat department. Here's Sergeant James Hale of the 9th Regiment of Foot. We were several times on this long advance short of provisions. The reason why is this. When the army was advancing in pursuit of the enemy, we frequently marched double stages, in consequence of which the cattle that carried our provisions were not able to come up with the army according to the time appointed. Therefore, by that means, we were obliged to do without it. So they were just advancing too damn fast. I guess that's a good problem to have in some ways, although it's cost many an army over the centuries. The French, under the nominal command of Napoleon's brother, King Joseph, but practically led by his chief of staff, Marshal Jourdan, had been outwitted. They had really struggled to understand the Allied movements and had found themselves outflanked time and time again, forcing them to keep withdrawing further and further back. The Spanish guerrillas also did an excellent job of keeping the French tied down and blocking their ability to scout effectively. It didn't help the French that they had a huge snaking baggage train loaded with five years of accumulated plunder, including priceless works of art, jewellery and entire libraries of books. On the 18th of June 1813 there were two short sharp fights at San Milan and at Osma. The French armies, the Army of the South, the Army of the Centre and the Army of Portugal now concentrated at the town of Vitoria on that royal road. They were still awaiting the arrival of Clausel's Army of the North, which hadn't yet joined up with them. To make matters worse for King Joseph and his generals, the town of Vitoria itself was crammed not only with that immense baggage train, but also hordes of refugees and military equipment. Any movement on their part from here would be slow and difficult. Meanwhile, Wellington skillfully gathered together his own columns. A major engagement was now inevitable. So before we dive into the fighting, I wanted to take a moment to try and describe the geography of the battlefield, the topography. This is quite hard for my audio-only listeners, but on YouTube, of course, the accompanying maps will also be helpful. I'll also recommend people to open up Google Earth if you can and search for the Vitoria in Spain as the 3D map is really good for understanding the battlefield. Compared to many of the battlefields we've discussed on the podcast, this one is big. It's about 12 miles long and 6 miles wide. The town of Vitoria sits on the main highway, as I mentioned, from Madrid and is surrounded by imposing mountains. I think Andrew Leith Hay of the 29th Regiment of Foot describes the area best in his memoir about the war. He said, Vittoria is situated on rising ground surrounded at a considerable distance by an amphitheatre of mountain. With the exception of the height upon which the city is built, the country in its immediate neighbourhood is level and of slight elevation. Extending along the northwest front of the town at the distance of a mile runs the Zadora River, a considerable stream, over which are erected several bridges. To the southwest, the lofty and extensive heights of Puebla communicate with the grounds domineering the route leading to Pamplona, Pamplona, he's written Pampil, Pampiluno. Pamplona, while on the directly opposite side of the valley, which in that particular part becomes more widely displayed, rises the eminences above the villages of Gamora Mayor and Abechuca. The situation of Vitoria is particularly picturesque and beautiful. End quote. Sorry, I messed that up a little bit. Also, some of the names, I'm not sure if the pronunciation is Spanish or, or Basque. But what was the size of the two opposing armies? Well, let's turn to historian William Napier. He says that there were 60,000 Anglo-Portuguese sabres and bayonets in the field with 90 guns. They were also supported by around 20,000 Spanish auxiliaries. 
The French, on the other hand, could muster around 60,000 men and over 150 guns. That's an impressive amount of firepower. As you can see, there were huge numbers of men involved across a vast and complicated battle space. Charles Oman tells us, Wellington spent the 20th in arranging for the general attack, which he had determined to deliver if Joseph stood his ground. The plan was ambitious, for the battlefield was far larger than any on which the Anglo-Portuguese army had ever fought before, and the numbers available were 30,000 more than they had been at Salamanca or Busaco, and more than double those of Fuentes de Añora. Moreover, he intended to operate with a great detached turning force against the enemy's flank and rear, a thing that he had only done once before at Salamanca, and then only with a single division. The battle plan was essentially a time problem. He had to arrange for the simultaneous appearance of four separate masses in front of the French position. All started from parallel points in the valley of the Bayas, but the obstacles in front of them were of very varying difficulty, and the distances to be covered were very different." End quote. Captain Cook of the 43rd Light Infantry describes the start of the day. This is from his memoir. On the 21st, we stood to our arms and moved forward in darkness sometime before daybreak. A heavy shower of rain fell, but as morning dawned, the clouds dispersed and the sun arose with a fiery splendor. A towering and steep ridge of mountains rose abruptly from the valley on our right. Here he's talking about the heights of Puebla, which we mentioned earlier which the Spaniards climbed early in the morning, at first unopposed. The ascent was so steep that while moving up it, they looked as if they were lying on their faces or crawling. They were supported and soon followed across the river Zadora and through the town of Puebla de Arlanzon by part of the second division for the purpose of attacking the left of the enemy who were posted on the heights above Puebla de Arlanzon and Subijana de Alva that's another village nearby which we'll mention later again, where the contest at the former place began at nine o'clock. Amongst deep ravines, rocks and precipices, the second division becoming heavily engaged with the enemy. First into attack were the men on the right of the Allied line. So what Cook is describing from a distance here is the advance of Murillo's Spaniards and Hill's second division along those Puebla heights on the British right flank. This began at around 8 a.m. The 71st Highland Light Infantry was present in the advance, and amongst them was John Howell. He wrote, We crossed a river, I won't do a Scottish accent, and as we passed through a village, we saw on the other side of the road the French camp, and their fires still burning just as they had left them. Not a shot had been fired at this time. We observed a large Spanish column moving along the heights on our right. We halted and drew up in column. Orders were given to brush out our locks, oil them, and examine our flints we being in the rear. These were soon followed by orders to open out from the center to allow the 71st to advance. Forward we moved up the hill. The firing was now very heavy. Our rear had not engaged before word came for the doctor to assist Colonel Cadogan, who was wounded. Immediately we charged up the hill, the piper playing Hey Johnny Cope. The French had possession of the top, but we soon forced them back and drew up in column on the height sending out four companies to our left to skirmish. The remainder moved on to the opposite height." End quote. But the French fought hard and casualties were heavy. Realizing that to lose the heights would be a disaster, they threw more men into the fray. Among those of the 71st killed as, 
mentioned earlier was their beloved commander, Colonel Henry Cadogan. Here is Cook again. At this time, the Major had the command of us after our second colonel being wounded. Obviously, he later died. There were not 300 of us on the height able to do our duty, out of above 1,000 who drew rations in the morning. The cries of the wounded were most heart-rending. The French on the opposite height were getting under arms, but we could give no assistance as the enemy appeared to be six to every one of us. Our orders were to maintain the height while there was any of us left. The word was given to shoulder arms. But despite the French numbers, the heart had gone out of them a little bit in this sector, as they saw the other British columns beginning to advance elsewhere. In the same division as the 71st Highland Light Infantry were the 2nd, 34th and our old friend Moyle Shearer. They were down the hill, just to the left of where the 71st were, and were tasked with attacking the village of Subihana de Alva. He picks up the story. My brigade marched upon the village of Supihana de Alva in front of the line and had orders to carry it with the bayonet. The enemy opened upon us with 14 pieces of artillery from their position as we moved down, but with little effect. I could never persuade myself that they would resign so important a post as the village without a struggle. And when we got close to it and began to find the ground difficult and intersected with walls and banks, I expected every moment to be saluted with a murderous discharge of musketry and to see them issue forth, and I prepared my men to look for any and disregard such an attack. Not a soul, however, was in the village, but a wood a few hundred yards to its left and the ravines above it were filled with French light infantry. I, with my company, was soon engaged in smart skirmishing among the ravines, and lost about 11 men killed and wounded out of 38. End quote. It was now about 11am, and while things were going well, Wellington was concerned about the whereabouts of some of his missing divisions, including the 1st and the 5th, as well as the Spanish and Portuguese units on his far left flank under General Graham. Graham was in fact in position, but out of view of Wellington, and true to his orders, was holding back in order to await developments on his right, which we'll get to shortly. Eventually, Graham did advance, and he pushed his Spanish division forward to capture the village of Gamara Minor. That was followed by an attack on the strongly held neighbouring village of Gamara Mayor, so presumably one was big, one was small. Here was some of the heaviest fighting of the day. Let's go back to Sir Charles O'Man again. He says, Robinson's brigade of the 5th Division had stormed Gamara Mayor, defended by the French 118th and 119th. That's Gautier's brigade of La Martiniere's division. This was a brilliant and costly affair, it being no light matter to attacking column of battalions the barricaded streets of a compact village. The British, however, burst in. Colonel Brooke with the 1st 4th being the first to force an entrance. The French abandoned three guns which had been placed in the barricades and fell back in disorder across the bridge. General Robinson endeavoured to improve the success by instant pursuit, but the French had guns bearing on the bridge, which swept away the first platoons that tried to cross it. Very few men reached the other side, and they were shot down before they could establish a lodgment on the farther bank. It was necessary to halt, reform and bring up more artillery before the attack could be repeated. Around the same time as the battle was raging, Wellington received a stroke of very good luck. Cook of the 43rd Light Infantry, part of the Light Division in the centre of the British line, takes up the story. 
We had remained some time in the wood when a Spanish peasant told the Marquis of Wellington that the enemy had left one of the bridges across the Zadora unprotected and offered his services to lead us over it. Our right brigade instantly moved to its left by threes at a rapid pace along a very uneven and circuitous path which was concealed from the observation of the French by high rocks and reached the narrow bridge which crossed the river to Iruna, the village of Iruna. The first rifles led the way and the whole brigade following passed at a run with firelocks and rifles ready, cocked and ascended a steep road of 50 yards at the top of which was an old chapel which we had no sooner cleared than we observed a heavy column of French on the principal hill and commanding a bird's eye view of us. However, fortunately a convex bank formed a sort of tête de pont, which is like a fort at the end of a bridge, behind which the regiments formed at full speed without any word of command. Two round shots came amongst us. The second severed the head from the body of our bold guide, the Spanish peasant, poor bugger. The soldiers were so well concealed that the enemy ceased firing. Our post was most extraordinary, as we were at the elbow of the French position and isolated from the rest of the army within 100 yards of the enemy's advance and absolutely occupying part of their position on the left of the river, without any attempt being made by them to dislodge us. Scarcely the sound of a shot from any direction struck on the ear, and we were in momentary expectation of being immolated, and, and as I looked over the bank, I could see El Rey Joseph, King Joseph, surrounded by at least 5,000 men within 800 yards of us. The reason he did not attack is inexplicable, and I think cannot be accounted for by the most ingenious narrator. The reason for this French unwillingness to attack was probably, uh, has, has many reasons, but one of the key ones was because there was a new threat developing. The British 3rd and 7th Divisions, which had been missing for some time, were now making a dramatic appearance. These two divisions were commanded by Lord Dalhousie, who was the commander of the 7th Division. His subordinate in this battle was the controversial but hard-fighting General Picton, who commanded the 3rd Division. Dalhousie had been overly conservative in his interpretations of Wellington's orders, and was still waiting for some of his units to arrive before engaging the French. Picton, a real thrust of a general, was growing steadily more annoyed as he could see the French weakness. Oman picks up the story. He says, Picton's blood was boiling, his stick was beating with rapid strokes upon the mane of his cob. He rode backward and forward, looking in every direction for the arrival of an aide-de-camp, until at, one, at last one galloped up from Lord Wellington. He was looking for Lord Dalhousie. The 7th Division had not yet arrived, having to move over difficult ground. This aide-de-camp checked his horse and asked the general, Picton, whether he had seen Lord Dalhousie. Picton was disappointed. He had expected that he might at least move now, and in a voice which did not gain softness from his feelings, he was a tough man, answered in a sharp tone, No, sir, I have not seen his lordship, but have you any orders for me? None, replied the aide-de-camp. Then pray, sir, what orders do you bring, said Picton. Why, answered the officer, that as soon as Lord D shall commence an attack on that bridge, pointing to the one on the left, I think it was the bridge at Mendoza, the fourth and light are to support him, he said. Picton could not understand the idea of any other division fighting in his front. And drawing himself up to his full height, he said to the astonished aide-de-camp, You may tell Lord Wellington from me, sir that the 3rd Division under my command shall, in less than 10 minutes, attack that bridge and carry it, and the 4th and Light may support if they choose. 
Having thus expressed his intention, he turned from the aide-de-camp and put himself at the head of his men, who were quickly in motion towards the bridge. Encouraging them with the appellation, I don't know what that means, come on ye rascals, come on you fighting villains, classic Picton. True to their nickname, the Fighting Division, as the third were known, these hardened veterans of numerous battles, which you can hear about on the podcast, including Busaco, Fuentes de Añoro and Badajoz, stormed forward across the bridge, as well as a nearby ford, soon followed by the 7th and Light Divisions. William Napier says that the battle now picked up in intensity again, the French being forced to retire with the Allies almost on top of them. Here's Napier's description of what happened next. So I'm reading from this book. It's the one volume, Napier's one volume, History of the War, which is just the battles condensed into one volume. It goes, The French, thus caught in the midst of their dispositions for retreat, threw out a prodigious number of skirmishers, while 50 pieces of artillery played with astonishing activity. This fire was answered by many British guns and both sides were shrouded by a dense cloud of smoke and dust under the cover of which the French retired by degrees to the range of heights in front of Gometcha on which their reserve had been posted. They however continued to hold the village of Arines on the main road and Picton's troops still headed by Barnard's riflemen plunged into the streets amidst a heavy fire. In an instant, three guns were captured, but the post was important. More French troops came in, and for a time, the smoke and dust and clamour, the flashing of firearms and the shouts and cries of the combatants, mixed with the thundering of the guns, were terrible. Yet finally, the British troops issued forth, victorious on the farther side. During this conflict, the 7th Division, reinforced by Van der Leer's brigade, was heavily raked by a battery at the village of Margarita, until the 52nd Regiment, led by Colonel Gibbs, with an impetuous charge, drove the French guns away and carried the village. At the same time, the 87th, remember them from Barossa, under Colonel Goff, won the village of Hermandad. Then, all on Picton's left advanced, fighting, and on his right, the 4th Division also made way, though more slowly because of the rugged ground. When Picton and Kemp's brigades had carried the village of Arines and gained the main road, the French troops near Subijana de Alva were turned and being hard pressed on their front and left flank by Hill and the troops on the Puebla mountain fell back for two miles in a disordered mass, striving to regain the great line of retreat to Vitoria. Some cavalry launched at this moment would have totally disorganised the French battle and secured several thousand prisoners, but it was not tried, and the confused multitude shot ahead of the British lines and recovered order. The ground was exceedingly diversified, in some places wooded, in others open, here covered with high corn, there broken by ditches, vineyards and hamlets, and the action resolved itself into a running fight and cannonade for a full six miles, the dust and smoke and tumult of which filled all the basin passing onwards towards Victoria as the Allies advanced, taking gun after gun in victorious progress. At six o'clock the French reached the last defensible height, one mile in front of Victoria. Behind them was the plain in which the city stood, and beyond the city thousands of carriages and animals and non-combatants, men, women and children were crowding together in all madness of terror, and as the English shot went booming overhead, the vast crowd started and swerved with a convulsive movement, while a dull and horrid sound of distress arose but there was no hope, no stay for army or multitude. It was the wreck of a nation. That's the end of this quote from, from Napier. Sergeant Cooper of the 7th Royal Fusiliers wrote, the contest was long and severe, but at length the French were driven from the hill. 
Their left being now turned and rolled up, a general advance was made, covered by our splendid cavalry. We marched across a flat into a wood of fir trees. Now the great tug of battle became fiercer, and the cannonading was tremendous and continuous, so that the musketry, which was also incessant, was lost in the horrid din caused by perhaps 200 pieces of artillery. The smoke, the hissing of the balls and shells, and the rush of cavalry and flying artillery with occasional hurrahs formed an indescribable uproar. We debouched from the wood and formed line in front of the light brigade, among whom I saw my brother about 50 yards behind me. We nodded, can you imagine just nodding in the middle of a battle? And while doing so, a ball ploughed up the earth before him. On my right, a ball tore a man's knapsack from his back but did not kill him. Through a fine field of ripe wheat we advanced in line, covered by a squadron of the lifeguards, and began to surround the French centre. Here the smoke was so dense that we could hardly distinguish friends from foes. After passing a fence, an officer galloped past our company and shouted, We've taken 40 pieces of artillery down there! This quickened our steps and pulses. A minute or two pass and Wellington with his staff gallops to a hill in our front and orders up six pieces of artillery which instantly began blazing away at the enemy, who were now in full and hasty retreat. The uproar of battle now ceased as if by magic, for the left wing of our army, perhaps two miles distant, had driven in the enemy's right upon their centre and taken possession of the great high road leading to France. In consequence, the enemy, beating at all points, made a general rush for the road to Pampeluna, or Pamplona, end quote. I'm compressing a couple of hours of hard fighting and serious manoeuvring into just a few sentences here, but essentially the battle had now turned into a rout. I'm going to switch back to Oman again because he said, It only remains to speak of the chaos in the fields and roads east of Vittoria. When the general debacle began, King Joseph and Jordan took their post on a low hill half a mile east of the town and endeavoured to organise the departure of the park and convoys, a hopeless task, for the roads were blocked and no one listened to orders. It was in vain that aide-de-camp and orderlies were sent in all directions. Presently, a flood of fugitives were driven in upon the staff by the approach of British cavalry. These were Grant's 10th and 18th Hussars, who had turned the town on its left and galloped down on the prey before them. Joseph had only with him two squadrons of his Lancers of the Guard, which had been acting as his headquarters escort all day. It would appear that the Guard Hussars came up to join them about this time. At any rate, these two small regiments made a valiant attempt to hold off the Hussars. They were, of course, beaten, being hopelessly outnumbered. The king and his staff had to fly as best they could and were much scattered, galloping over fields and marshy ravines mixed with military and civil fugitives of all sorts. Some of the British hussars followed the throng, taking a good many prisoners. More, it is to be feared, stopped behind to gather the not-too-creditable first fruits of victory by plundering the royal carriages, which lay behind the scene of their charge. The French stragglers had already shown them the way. So basically, the French stragglers had started looting their own supplies, and now the British cavalry copied them. Wellington, on reaching Victoria, set Robert Hill's brigade of the household cavalry to guard the town from plunder, and sent on the rest of the horse and the infantry as they came up in pursuit of the enemy. The French, however, had by now a good start, and troops in order cannot keep up with troops in disorder. In other words, those who are broken are just running for the hills especially those who have gotten rid of their impedimentia and scattered themselves. 
The country, moreover, was unfavourable for cavalry, as has been said, and the infantry divisions were tired out. The chase ended five miles beyond Vittoria. The enemy, when last seen, being still on the run with no formed rearguard, except on the side of the road where the army of Portugal was retreating. If the prisoners were fewer than might have been expected, the material captured was such as no European army had ever laid hands on before since Alexander's Macedonians plundered the camp of the Persian king after the Battle of Issus. End quote. That really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Over 150 guns and 100 artillery wagons were captured, as well as the military equipment that was abandoned by the desperately retreating French was a staggering amount of riches. They themselves had plundered that stuff from the Spanish over the last six years of occupation. George Bell, an officer of the 2nd 34th, the same unit as Moyle Shearer, later recalled, this is a quote from his memoir, The spoil was great. It may be said that the fighting men were marching and fighting upon gold and silver without helping themselves. Five million dollars abandoned by the French and left upon the ground were picked up by non-combatants and camp followers. Probably not totally telling the truth there. There were little barrels of doubloons and napoleons in gold for the picking up, but rather heavy to put into one's haversack. The chase was so swift and the men so excited that but a few just stumbled over this treasure, nor would any man be permitted to stop a moment if observed. Yet, here he's being honest, a great many did fill their pockets and haversacks and holsters with loose treasure, just en passant, and kept on blazing away like fun. Not a dollar ever came to our treasury as prize money, which the Duke complained of. End quote. One soldier, rifleman Edward Costello, had a particularly profitable day. He wrote in his memoir, When I had passed the gates and forced my way through the immense quantity of baggage that blocked up the further end of the town, and through which the cavalry could scarcely pass, I beheld a French officer, sword in hand, escorting a carriage, and four out of town. I don't know if he means five carriages, a carriage and four. My comrade and myself immediately fired when the officer fell. At the same moment, the carriage stopped. On rushing up to the vehicle, we perceived it contained two ladies evidently of high rank. They seemed much alarmed as the balls kept whisking around them from both sides. We desired them not to entertain any fears for their safety, as we would not harm them. While thus engaged, an officer of the Ten Hussars came galloping up, flourishing his sword over his head. Not recognising his uniform at first, I cocked my rifle, upon which he exclaimed, I'm an English officer, sir! Hearing this, I stepped on one side of the carriage, but in withdrawing I observed a small but exceedingly heavy portmanteau that was carried by a Spanish muleteer in the French service. He was in the act of conveying it towards the town. And as I thought I contributed more towards his capture, I made him lay it down. Not indeed before I was compelled to give him a few whacks of my rifle in the ribs, in his ribs. My comrades had gone in another direction so that I had no one to claim a portion of my booty, which on inspection I found to consist of, a, of several small bags filled with gold and silver in doubloons and dollars. Although I never knew exactly the amount, I should think it not less than a thousand pounds. Now imagine how much a thousand pounds was in that days. I don't even know what it is, but it was probably tens of thousands in modern money. And so the battle was over. As Oman says, it was the crowning point of a very brilliant strategic campaign. In less than two months, Wellington and his army had swept the French back from the Portuguese border and crushed them in a major battle. The Redcoats and their allies, the Portuguese and Spanish, had proved their superior of, uh, superiority over Napoleon's hordes once again. 
and what of casualties? Well, the Allied force lost just over 5,000 men, so it was still quite heavy casualties, of whom 3,672 were British, 921 Portuguese and 552 Spaniards. The French loss in the battle, according to a definitive report made from their headquarters of the three armies after they got back to France, was that 42 officers and 716 men were killed, 220 officers and 4,210 men wounded, and 23 officers and 2,825 prisoners or missing. That's over 8,000 in total. It's known that of those missing, though, some, some hundreds were stragglers who later rejoined their units. The total numbers, number of prisoners that the British or the Allies took was around 2,000. And so there we have it guys, King Joseph is on the run, his army is broken and it seems that the French, French occupation of Spain is finished once and for all. But is it the end of the Peninsula War? Well the short answer is absolutely not. One thing about Napoleon's army is that it can never be underestimated. They have a knack of bouncing back and bouncing back quickly. Well guys, there you have it. What a, what a story. Arguably one of the most effective and dashing campaigns ever fought by the British Army. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed writing it. In the next episode, which will be out in December, I'll be taking a quick break from the narrative again to explain the organisation and recruitment of the British infantry of the Napoleonic Wars. It's something I probably should have done at the start of the series, but hey, better late than never. In January, I'm sad to say, we'll have to wrap up season three of the Redcoat History podcast. I will come back to the Peninsula War for ad hoc episodes, but the main series will be over. I'll be moving on to historical pastures new. The plan for 2022 is to bounce around a bit more, introduce interviews that cover fascinating and obscure campaigns of the British Army. I want to look especially at the Victorian era. So I do plan on focusing a little bit on the story of the First Anglo-Boer War, a conflict that saw Queen Victoria's army bested by the rebellious Boers of the Transvaal Republic. Many of the battlefields are close to where I stay. If you enjoyed my series on the Zulu War, Season 1, then you will like this because some of the characters are the same people. Because it was fought, this is the First Anglo-Boer War, very soon after the Anglo-Zulu War. Anyway guys, don't forget to like and subscribe this episode and I'll speak to you again soon.